still kind of trying to figure out how I'm going to do all that. I'm probably going to have to make a major change so I have enough room, but I have this large table that I have room right here to put it on top of so I could do the um, podcasting face-to-face uh, podcasting with Isaac right there. So I keep thinking about it. <laughs> That's the way it goes when you have something new and you want to give it a whirl. But I'm not the best at this stuff. There is a fellow that I know who knows more than I do. I might ask for his help. We'll see. But I need to start doing some interviews. I think that would be a good idea. Okay. Alright. I have to focus. I'm still... Okay. Last night I listened to a um, Sasha Stone talk with Carrie Cassidy. It was um, a side of Sasha I never saw before. Uh, a very congenial, well, he's, he's usually congenial and he's very good with words um, and his attitude and everything, but I've never seen him praise somebody quite like he did um, Cassidy, and my gosh, she needed it so much, and it meant so much to her, and, you know, I don't think she ever got that, that much, I, I just don't think so, so here it goes, here it goes. nature that to me is a, a life well lived and I also okay. feel that Whoa. that was the end of it okay it's buffering so Kerry Cassidy uh, you, I, I, I extend to the highest accolade because you need absolutely no introduction uh, to my audience, certainly not to your own audience, or to the truther uh, community in the world at large. I was very happy uh, to be able to speak with you. I've heard that you've just landed in London. How was the, the trip across there? Was it more um, totalitarian in the US or in, in the UK? Actually, neither. You know, I think that what they want you to believe is, is that it's, um, it's dire to travel. You're not supposed to travel, um, which is why I do it. Do you think that if, if governments at large and the World Health Organization all instructed us to wear large uh, pink dildos on our head, <clears throat> we would all fall in and acquiesce to that? Uh, some humans would. Uh, I, I know that there's such things in my area where I live in, in California. Um, I'm about 40 miles north of L.A. 
and uh, they won't let us in grocery stores without them. Or I, I do this thing where I wear a, a bandana type mask. I, I never wear their their regulation. I forgot he said that. Um, so and, and it just seems to fall off record. a lot. So. Okay, fair enough. So I'm going to jump into my questions. I, I did what I also never do today, which is prepared a whole bunch of questions. Because um, okay. I, I was really looking forward to just kind of firing off um, rapid-fire questions to you. I wanted to know about, because of course we've all known uh, Project Camelot. We know what a what a signature has been in truth and disclosure and, and um, helping to a, a lot of people around the world. When I say a lot, I mean many, many millions of people have really been helped um, to cross over the line within themselves because with the way I see your project, and of course, you know, it's very totemistic. You talk about Camelot. It's our fury and it's legend. It's all about, um, you know, let's take our seats at the table within ourselves and reconvene as a species and let's pick up the, the flame of truth as a sword and move forward. You know, it's very evocative. I love the fact that you chose that that totem. But I'm interested to know what your personal reasons are. What triggered you to start tearing the mask off the status quo? Uh, well, I, I, I've always, uh, since I came onto the planet, uh, felt that, um, nothing, you know, things were done wrong. Nothing, there was too many lies. There were, you know, I, I didn't believe what, people told me from a young age and I questioned everything. Uh, I, I saw into other realities as, as a young person. So I, I knew there was more to this than what, what we were being told. Um, and I found, I guess you might say conventional reality, extremely boring. <laughs> That's how I saw it. Um, I did end up reading like, you know, tons of books when I was young, just to escape the boredom uh, of the everyday world. Uh, and basically was just a truth seeker, always questioning. <laughs> um, I think in, in one uh, UCLA class, I was termed uh, like won a prize for asking the most questions. So I, nothing made sense to me uh, the way things were done here on earth. At any rate, getting the truth out was what I was all about. Um, and I used to get in trouble as a kid for, for actually talking back to teachers. So I started at a young age doing this sort of thing. Um, I also, um, okay, so eventually I picked up a consumer grade camcorder and started to, decided to make a UFO documentary. Uh, I had been working in Hollywood, rising uh, up the ranks and reached a glass ceiling, couldn't get beyond it, and uh, was trying to independently produce films and um, didn't have a track record, so it's kind of a catch-22. So at that point, uh, I decided to make a UFO documentary, and I, I went around um, to conferences and started interviewing people with that. Um, and was on that way and then I met uh, my partner at the time, uh, Bill Ryan, who was English and he he was representing the Serpo project yeah. as a, um, actually collecting and collating information. So it was actually when we connected and then I did an interview with him as part of my really small channel at the time and uh and and it did very well and, and then i went to egypt with jordan maxwell and william henry in search of atlantis uh on some money from an in small inheritance of my mother had passed away 
and then went to meet Bill Ryan in England where he showed me the formal former home of King Arthur in Tintagel and that is where you might say we had a divine revelation or whatever you want to call it uh, where I had had even as a child been um, kind of obsessed as a young child with the book The Once and Future King uh, and the Arthur legend and I believe that might have to do with an reincarnational memory or just simply uh, what we call imprinting on the female warrior that Guinevere was. And so um, I guess I carried that with me. And then when I went to Tintagel, I started having past life recall of the time of Arthur. But, it, but we connected and basically decided that we could put our talents together and using the um, inspiration of the round table, the King Arthur round table, which is a flat organization in theory uh, where everyone is equal and bring the truth out that way. So then it became, let's call it either Project Camelot or Camelot Project. And ultimately we, we thought Project Camelot sounded better. We did hit the ground running because we started interviewing whistleblowers from above top secret. That was really our kind of key yeah. foot in, if you will. And, and that was very unusual at the time. Stephen Greer, a couple of years earlier had been doing something similar when we found out that he had been sort of going down this road but sitting on the film uh the this this the, the reason ostensibly was because he um he wanted hollywood type production value and i decided that we would be uh what i call a guerrilla filmmaking team and that we would go because you know the mtv kind of model was out there at the time and that we would do it uh, very avant-garde and it wouldn't stand on ceremony and, and basically would just do it, in, you know, and I taught myself uh, how to edit, how to do everything, and then I, I, I subsequently taught Bill. And the uh, obvious question, how many interviews have you done in your life? On YouTube, I have, um, it might even be a thousand at this video interviews on YouTube right now. Uh, and I've also done about five years of radio shows. In your view, how much of a difference do you feel that Project Camelot has made in stirring public consciousness and making a palpable difference? I've got my ideas about that, and others will, but it, it really matters what you think. What do you see? What do you feel? Uh, I can tell you that I get recognized in you know the wilds of Ireland, <laughs> you know, out in the country and, and unexpected places. It just happened to me in a recording studio here in London. Uh, so I don't know what to say about that, but I can say that I, even to this day, still get e emails, and I know that Bill does, in fact, even though he was only with me for the first three years. I've been doing this now for 16 years. Um, he, he, we get daily e emails thanking us and, and telling us that we have been instrumental in awakening uh, people. So I do believe that we have... A, a bigger reach even than our my YouTube channel, which is quite substantial, as you may know. Um, you know, I think it's something around 69 million viewers worldwide. In this, this movement um, of truth and disclosure, it, it's obviously a, um, a, a very nebulous kind of world for us to project ourselves into. There are a lot of um, very, very good, very conscious people who are, um, the most progressivist in the world in terms of um you know 
breaking through the veil and 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 wanting to elevate consciousness and able to push themselves beyond boundaries and all the rest of it but at the same time there's a kind of counterpoint in the truth and disclosure movement to real shitty low frequency ugly characters as uh, some of them who are paid uh, as saboteurs and provocateurs um others that are just low frequency ghastly kind of um scarcely in soul trolling elements how what is your experience of that side the kind of swamp elements in the truth and disclosure movement and has that ever really retarded your own process have you ever thought you know fuck it i'm i'm just i can't deal with this have you felt that at times in the early days you know bill was this nice polite englishman and i was the complete opposite <laughs> i guess you know sort of in your face ask, acting asking the uh the direct questions and so people love to hate me so from the very early days i i got um and and still do occasionally get incredibly hateful com- comments i was famous in a prior life i know this sounds crazy but uh this is how i view it so i knew what it was to be famous in my prior life and so i knew already and besides i also was working in hollywood for 20 years in in the mainstream hollywood you know being in the, that milieu uh day in and day out. i i guess i i internalized understanding that you, people love to hate you and that uh when you incite controversy you know i think it's madonna who said there is no bad you know publicity hmm. right after college when i was living in new york city i started i i would meditate um day in and day, day out uh even had a situation where I didn't have to necessarily work every day spent about an intense month uh in intense meditation and connected all my chakras and had multiple samadhi experiences since then which has served me throughout my career to understand and to see through the maya of of what we live in so i don't um you know i understand people are doing projecting all the time and they they're seeing their own enemies you know when when they look at you and when you trigger them of course they hate you right so if you know my interviews are all about challenging everyone's notion of reality from every angle and and really i don't there's no limit to that i get less criticism now than i used to at least in these public ways um i still have a huge hating you know there are people who have actually done whole shows all about hating me and and telling lies about me it's quite a quite a politics the badge of honor do you think when when you find people making films about you and making up your life and uh, dates and <laughs> and names and i mean because i have a, lo- a fair bit of that in the last couple of two or three years um yeah. like extraordinary you just i don't watch any links against me i mean people send them to me and i i've never watched one I, again if you're in the public eye you have to develop this consciousness of what's really going on when somebody is watching you as if you want to call it an icon or a person just a person who gets you know a lot of notice on the screen etc uh jealousies raging you know that that on um competitiveness even for colleagues i think people working in an, at the average office you know have the same kind of dynamics going on don't they it's just very human do you think uh i suppose it's considered very human now it's important to look at you know this is how i i look at the thing is that 
humans uh, here on Earth are, of course, programmed. So they're programmed to be more vindictive than they really are, in my view. Because what happens is that the system they live under, in which it's dog eat dog, and you know, it's that old parental thing where, you know, if mommy likes you better, then you get these kudos, or if daddy likes you better, then you get pat on the head, and so on. So all these people rising through the ranks of their companies and so on are all fighting each other to get to the top. It's that's the that's the system they live in. Yes. So with a system like that, it has to have that competitive thing of, of backbiting and so on as part of the, the motivation for the individuals to then climb that ladder because they're actually desperate for approval yes. and so on. Very good. So I, I want to know, which of your interviews do you most regret? And you have to be honest with me here. I want the top three interviews that you regret the most. Or that you would basically go back and go, you know what, scrub, delete. Um, I was misled. I was pulled by the nose. Whatever. Uh, you know, that's very difficult. Uh, first of all, if I say that, you must understand that it's going to reflect on the person. Um let me just say that there's an English person who uh, worked for the Ministry of Defense in England who uh, who is out on the circuit, you know, and has been over the years, and he's considered, you know, he's consulted for his expertness, etc. But he is totally, you know, spouting the the British, uh, you know, rulers' party line, and. We went into the interview, especially I go into an interview, hoping that I will get beneath the surface with the person. So I, I can say that this particular person, I, we thought we could get under the surface with him and simply could not do so. He, he really, you know, he was the good, good um, well-paid servant of the British realm, and he, he, you know, lied to us through his teeth constantly. I can say there's, uh, you know, very few. There's one that I've interviewed, again, I, I prefer not to use names, uh, who uh, has a, it must, people must understand that I interview whistleblowers. That's my real area of expertise, although I ended, inter, ended up interviewing everyone under the sun since then. But um, when you interview a whistleblower, you already know that they are somebody who have been working on the dark side for uh, sometimes 40 years of their life, sometimes their whole life. And with that, that means they have a checkered past. They are not, you know, angels, these people that I interview. And yet, a lot of them have, have made incredible sacrifices to come out from that, that side and cross over what I would, would term a defector. This particular whistleblower had one of those dark pasts, um, unfortunately was, uh, became much too popular very, very quickly um, and probably should not, not have. So it's not so much that he was lying as he was, um, you know, his, his, the stuff he talked about was kind of out there. It wasn't so rare. It's just that he was a good um, self-promoter, you might say, and uh, caught on quickly. And even, you know, he made lots of money off of, you know, just being on my show. Just And um, I got a tremendous amount of negative feedback also on that. Um, I, I interviewed one person who uh, 
who actually um, got in a fight with me on the on the show, and 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 you know hung up the phone. Uh, so I guess that was a bad choice. Although he was an interesting man, he had interesting science behind him, but you know he was an egotist, and he also wasn't. You know, some people are not used to being asked direct questions. Which of your interviews is your all-time favorite? You can give me a couple if you like, but I'm, I'm interested to know that. Uh, <laughs> it's really hard because I've done so many. Um, I like the one I did with you, for example. Oh, I think you're fabulous. I think you're you're so uh, so well spoken, and I think you're really on a roll right now. And I think you're you're doing a great service uh, by the way you you position yourself and the way you're coming across, and how incredibly erudite you are and and eloquent in in, in your delivery. So I think you know. Um, so I tend to like some of the more recent ones, but, you know, of course, everyone would say, you know, John Lear and Bob Dean, and of course, these are favorites, and, um, I, gosh, P. Peterson, uh, difficult, difficult man, however, uh, but I still, I like my portion of that interview, because that's where he said, I asked him directly, you know, are we living in the times of the Terminator, and Spynet, and he basically had to say yes, but after I did my section with him, because David Wilcock did one section, Bill Ryan and then mine, and I got a call, the only call we got from, from Pete Peterson and, and the Pentagon was to remove my part, that it was terrible and that it was not useful and why don't I get rid of it? And then I knew I was all, the only one who was really over target because you never get flat unless you're over target. So that's one I, that I like. I love my Gordon Novell interview. It's in black and white. That was my choice. Yeah. And he was a showman, but he was also he was also striving to tell the truth. And he had a handler right there in the room with him as the interview was. I loved that interview. Thought it was fantastic. Yeah. How do you yeah. view that the the uh, project Camelot demographic is evolving? Your own audience. I mean, because it's been a journey, right? It's an ongoing journey, and I've looked at it. And I've really seen how it's gone. I, I think it's just beautifully moving incrementally into a kind of consciousness space and a love space and an absolution space. Now, let's just, let's, you know, leave behind some of the shit. There was, you just talk about guerrilla uh, filming, and that's how you began. And you had a fantastic format where you'd stand by the camera and you'd have one camera that occasionally picked up you behind the camera. But in the main, you were like up close and tight with people. And you're just really focused on the on the subject, and I thought that was a great format. But watching your audience, from what I've seen over the years, I think it's really turning into a really pretty enlightened uh, demographic, and I'm super impressed by that. Uh, I agree. I, you know, I think the Camelot audience, uh, bar none, is probably one of the most discerning audiences out there. Uh, and I'm proud of that. I, I think they've come along, as I said, with the journey. And uh, if you actually spend the time and saw, you know, obviously most people won't see all my interviews, but if you saw like a good portion of them, you've really taken the journey down the rabbit hole, as we say. And once you do that, you can't unlearn uh, what you've learned. And I, I think that that in some ways may, um, is instrumental to positioning the movement, if you want to call it that, that we have right now. 
In other words, without that background, our um, our constituency, if you want to call it that, of, of the alternative that is supporting Trump, for example, with full awareness and understanding why he's good at what he does and why he's doing things the way he's doing them, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, they came along through Camelot. They were ready for that. They are now ready for this time. They understand they are not going to be standing in line for vaccines. They're not going to be standing in line for to wear masks or any of this nonsense. They see through it. They question. And that's actually the premier uh, thing that I want people to do. I want people to question. I want them to teach their children to question and so that they can protect themselves. And that goes for everything in every walk of life. Um, you know, if you're told to stand in line over there and something's going on over here, then I want them to question why they're standing in line over there. So that, 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 that brings me to a very contemporaneous theme, which is, which is Q and Q drops and all things related to Q. I'll tell you what, for myself, I've never read the Q drops. I've not followed it. I've heard about it anecdotally from friends who come and have dinner and say, oh, and then read me the latest Q thing. So I've heard the last couple of years and followed it with some uh, interest. I'd be very stupid not to. But I'll tell you the piece that really compelled me was when you start to, when you look at the JFK memorial and you look at Princess Diana's memorial, and it's like, whoa. And th there is something odd connecting to, and, and Neverland, Michael Jackson's Neverland as well. I mean, he's also got that huge Q on the, on the, on the monolith on the ground. What is your take on, on Q? I'm sorry, I have to ask you the question. Um, it's fashionable to say that you don't believe in Q and that it's a, all a psyop and all this nonsense. Um, I don't agree at all. I, I actually think Q is very well thought out. Um, I admire it. It, I believe it's the publicity arm for, for Trump who wasn't able to get the mainstream media to go along with him in any way, shape, or form. He had to have a way to reach the audience, to reach his audience, and Q, Q was his, his PR, um, but a very intelligent PR, not the kind of PR that we're used to, of course. Yeah. Uh, and and I you know I, I I feel that the hand of uh, of John F Kennedy Jr. is behind the scenes. I, I you know I think it, it harks back to his magazine George and his his sensibility. Um, and and I believe it's a, it's a team of, of, of very intelligent people uh, doing what they're doing to me. What they know is is the really core audience following Trump. Yeah. And to keep them sort of front and center and also so they don't kind of go off the reservation wondering what the hell is going on because it's so easy to do that now. There was a, a critical time during the summer in July really when actually suppose we had heard all along since this you know January that truth was going to come out and very forcefully that some indictments would be would be announced that uh, that uh John F. Kennedy Jr. would come forward and so on. All of that didn't happen. Yep. Uh, it happened, some things happened, I, I heard and I got some evidence that the indictments were happening, but they weren't public. Even lawyers were not allowed to actually right. see the indictments. I got a back channel uh, on that. But the bottom line is that uh, that 
at that time, I actually wrote to the White Hats, and I wrote, you know, and I said this publicly, so that hoping that, you know, the Q team would hear me and that Trump would hear me, um, basically saying, you guys need a win. You need a public win right now because people are vacillating. They're wondering, you know, is this there really anything solid here? And this is going to bring, you know, this would carry him through the election. I, I actually admire Trump. I feel that he, that he has been, as a soul, put in a very trying place. And yes, he's gotten tremendous support behind the scenes and even in public, you know, especially when he spoke right before the election. And you could see the packed crowds. They were rampantly uh, loving him and, and supporting him. But I also believe that his team, that, that is, I think, instrumental in, in getting him. He's the front man. He's, and so on, from my point of view. Um, I, I think they gave him an incredibly heavy burden to bear, you know, best. You don't thing. think that's a first-term phenomenon and that the second term is when he moves on the front foot? Because I've always thought that that's exactly how it's going to be played. Sure. I, I think there's no doubt about it. But if you look at the nuances as to where we're going and how this is playing out, um, you know, I'm an educator. I can, I'm also very good at, at, at sensing the audience. And I can say that, you know, there's no point in losing your audience. And you also need, you also need these people who are supposed to be educated, who know nothing, you know. Um, you also need to give them something to admire. You know what I mean? You need to once in a while throw them something to say, in, and, and not just in such a quiet way, because there have been, let me, let, don't misunderstand me. You know, I mean, he took over the Fed and nobody noticed. You know? Let me jump in here, because I, I hear everything you're saying, but I've also seen how, because I'm one of those few people who's studied every single executive order that's come out of the, the Oval Office since 2017. And when I saw him deregulating government and throwing out, you know, nine statutes for every new one coming on the books, I'm like, wow, that just that alone makes this man incredible, makes this a paradigm a shift president. Um, and then you see what he did with human trafficking almost day one in office. And, and that executive pen essentially declared war on all human trafficking around the world. And boy, has it delivered on that systemically. I know I'm deeply in, embedded in that in that uh, complex and studying that stuff for remedy and then we saw what he did with, with the, the media calling calling mainstream media out for what it was from day one and consistently maintaining that so my I, my point is had plenty I, wins since they are not reported so how do how does he counter that okay so let's look at that let's look at why again why couldn't he have had a media of his own as well well, you know, that was more substantial than the one he has. Uh, it's still very, very weak. There's no reason why they couldn't have had, a, you know, a set up a channel. You know, he has endless money coming at him. You know, they could have set set up a channel that would actually reflect some of his wins on a more collective basis. No, you're not allowed to. Consider propaganda. Uh, well, I, I think there are ways of doing it. There are things that Trump and his team whether it's a deal with the devil or whatever you have to do in order to just stay alive, they were not and are not possibly able to come forward with until, as you say, the second term when all bets are off, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
But the bottom line is that these things are going to also expose the secret space program, which is, you know, huge, that Russia's fully involved with us in. You know, changing the playing field, the underground bases, you know, the, the, the fact that the whole thing is financed by not just drugs and, and, and you know, other things, but, but the human trafficking and specifically the pedophilia. That the pedophilia is, is the engine behind the Illuminati, behind the way they, 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 they behave. And, and most people don't even understand that. And I have a huge understanding of that and, and can go on for, for a substantial amount of time that I probably don't have here. But the bottom line being that these are things that, uh, these, these things have to be exposed. But, you know, in doing one thing, you're going to expose everything else in a certain way. He's exposing certain things, but he's staying very mainstream. Some of his wins are things that us in the alternative sector know to be truths that he could have come forward with. You know, at what point do you say time out if they haven't awoken by now? And with reading the camel through the eye of the needle right now, this week, I mean, the shift point coming with the galactic. Uh, I agree. Um, there, there's been, even in the last few days, right around the 14th, I don't know if it was exactly the 14th, but basically there was like almost a moment of silence when we reached the top of this farce, the, the pinnacle, so to speak, and then things have started to fall since then. Yes. And it was a quiet, silent moment, and I, that's what I heard. I just couldn't believe it. Even people that have been writing to me like, non-stop going crazy even my own self at that point i didn't want to say a thing yes i just wanted to be quiet and listen and that's what i heard i heard that we had come to this absolute crescendo and that things were then going to start to fall that's beautifully stated carrie i couldn't agree more with that i mean even today i'm walking on the beach just down here and i'm seeing a different quality of light coding there's a saturation in the colors of the plants and the trees and the palms and the sky and, and I'm not making this up I'm, I'm so attuned to observing light I've done it as a practice for 25 years now and I'm telling you now it is shifting palpably in front of us it's so exciting I wanted to ask you I feel, uh, I feel that yeah, yeah. I want to ask you what is your ABC on the alien question is it is it something which um, is it connected to cosmogenesis is it something we're now about to awaken to is this connected to revelation what's your bottom line on ets and aliens being one of the most uh, knowledgeable people on earth today on the subject how do you in in three minutes in an elevator speak to somebody from a dry start they are us uh in essence uh they are actually beings you know i say to people why limit the imagination of of god why would you look at the creator and say, well, they can, he's a, he, or, you know, like people like to personify as he, he's only capable of creating one being. And the pinnacle of his creation is people like to say humanity. I disagree with that. Uh, first of all, I can tell you for a fact that actually what creator is doing is constantly upgrading and changing and, and, and morphing and creating conscious, it's all consciousness, okay? So all it is is form. Form contains consciousness. So these so-called aliens 
in many cases are our progenitors and the humanoid ones, all right? And even our reptilian brain, you can appreciate, comes from the reptilian race. Okay, so we're talking about genetic engineering. So humans are a hybrid race. Therefore, we are, I always say, made up of at least 12 ET off-planet races and under the planet as well. And, and one of those races that had to contribute to making sure humanity stayed alive on this planet because they kept getting uh, decimated by, by the roving reptilian races was, is, is actually the contribution of the reptilian brain, the, the side that is, you know, in the Bush family and the, and the, and the, the royal family and the whole bloodline thing. These are the ones that have the most reptilian in their bloodline. That are that are the you know uh, me first you know power over others. This is this is what we're dealing with. So those races are are basically known to be marauding. In other words, they go from planet to planet, solar system solar system, and they feed off of the human humans that are there, the other beings that are there, and and whatever you want to call it, whether it's a, you know adrenochrome type of, of solution. Uh, basically, when it comes down to it, it's orgone, okay? It's orgone on the west and kundalini on the, on the east, and this is what they're feeding on, okay? They feed off the energy of other beings, and they're motivated by, it appears, an AI, okay? So there's an AI behind the scenes motivating them and, and, and creating this sort of um, adversarial uh atmosphere of of the of the of the spheres if you will so so we are in a war of worlds and i always point to the ashiana dean books as having the best she downloads from the guardian races which is a group of races that they're called the guardians because they're guardians over humanity over the seeding of humanity so and they're a mixture of many races so I, you know, I don't agree with people that say that this, you know, that man is God's created in own God. Of course, we're creating God's image. But what is God's image? You know, think about that. Yeah. Um, you know, the creator has multitude, endless faces. Um, and we are all creator. Which are the most benevolent ETs that you're aware of? Uh, you know, benevolence is an interesting thing, and I think humans a lot of times misunderstand that concept. So, uh, I, I, I'm very fortunate in, in my whistleblowers and in the depth to which I've been able to go in, in this area, and my own contact experiences as well, which gets wrapped into everything I say. Um, so, bo- bottom line is, every race of beings has a has their own... Um, self-interest that they are dedicated to you could say and the reptilians are no different from the Pleiadians so I know that people are fond of thinking well the Pleiadians are the good guys but even William Tompkins one of my key whistleblowers talked about how the Pleiadians have a self-interest and one of those things is even though there are progenitors uh, they actually wanted want humanity to be on the front lines in the battle with the reptilians that are their enemies as well, because we are 
good fighting machines in essence and then we fall for first right so are they the most benevolent uh well they're certainly aligned with us very closely and along that line goes you know is lyra coming from lyra originally and so on there are humanoid races all through the galaxies and some of those i believe are ai and some of them are fully trans you know in a transhumanoid if you want to use that terminology in other words their bodies are not necessarily they may look humanoid but they're not carbon based life forms any longer so does that make them not uh, related to us actually no i think they're still related and I, I you know this is all gets into my book and in my book i talk about the fact that this is what we're facing right now and this is comes back to the covid thing and the vaccines and everything else because the vaccine program is a transhuman agenda without a doubt yeah. okay but it's it's also it involves control it involves yes they want to get rid of some people but that it's not so much to kill you as it is to transform you yes. into what they want which mark richard says is is a population of passive super soldiers okay now that may be an easy throwaway term but if you really think about it it's quite interesting so basically that you would take orders that you would not fight back that you would not have your own sort of self identity and 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 provide any challenge to them so of course with their reptilian concept you know as long as you're lesser than they're fine with you the material reality is maya it will always be maya it's it's an illusion you know i don't like spiders spiders i just you know i can fight you know the toughest illuminati as they say but don't try to put me in a room with the spider. So I've had to learn to communicate with them. I've learned to appreciate them more than I used to, let's put it that way. But I know that they think they're beautiful. And I can tell you that Mark Richards talks about the raptors and how beautiful they think they are. Yeah, you've got AI, artificial intelligence, and you've got these sort of trillion dollar corporation interests in in screwing with the human genetic expression, interposing all sorts of AI algorithms into sequestering us and diverting us from thwarting us again into some kind of a harvest i am passionately interested in learning how to counterpoint that uh, manipulation and domination attempt at us which is happening at such a macro level i'm passionately interested in how do we augment accelerate and enhance our innate capacity to tap into psionic intelligence telepathic intelligence the empathic and compassion and as you rightly said creativity and that's also why we're so remarkable but i think that we've got the the capacity now to almost move without using any kind of ai talk about triggering our capacitors to invoke mokaba and be able to bend time and travel through space and all the rest of it by that in, innate intrinsic technology which is born within the tech geometry of of actualized atomic expression once you and I move into our euphoria and move into that kind of adamite blissful state we can traverse dimensions we can move through space time vectors i mean haven't we learned that much from all of the whistleblowers i mean look i i've learned that from my own journeys right. in other words 
So what I would say is we're already there. Um, this is kind of my, again, getting back to what I talk about in my book. In other words, the idea that you can't sometimes be eternal and other times not. Yes. You are always eternal or you're never eternal. So if you're eternal and if you're residing in source, you're always residing in source. That doesn't mean you might not have interference on, on a, if you look at it in a time-space continuum. But ultimately, your higher self, your avatar, whatever you want to call it, is residing in source always. always. And that being the case is we have all those abilities. Yeah. And therefore, yes, we may be diagramming them out and they may be brought in from you know some, some so-called higher realms. But again, we have those access as well. And I would never limit what we are and what we are capable. So it seems at the moment we're incapable of of, of, of go, jumping ahead of this drive. It's really this, well, I call it, you know, in my terminology, the secret space program drive to create a humanity 3.0. But keep in mind that the even the co-creators of our form, they didn't create us, the, the spirit that in, in, embodies the form but they created the form and it's an amazing form all right so with that in mind what they knew we would be challenged by and that includes ai okay so they it's not like they didn't work it into the program we already have the capacity to fight all of this stuff and in reality it's in us because we are source there are going to be, again, influences that even the so-called program does not plan upon. You know, it's really interesting when you study uh, the history even of remote viewing and you see the, the things that happened that were unpredictable, that were not part of the original experiment, that, that tend to sway the, the experiment. People and humans and even the beings out there um, it's an interesting game that gets played. In other words, certain races want to like be the popular ones on the block for humanity. They want to be the leaders of humanity. They want to say they created us. They want to say, you know, they taught us, they did this to us and so and so forth. And they're giving us this gift or that gift. When reality is that it, if you really go back in time, it's probably coming from us anyway. I mean, you know, we are all one. And we, human, you know, um, like they say, child is, is father to the man, right? So this is where humanity is actually a combination of all the ET races that have gone into to genetically engineering us through the centuries and centuries, okay? And that's way more races. It's even more races than 12 at this point. Understand that. And understand that the AI now is part of this, this whole mix that we're having to deal with. So as, as uh, Mark Richards says, every space-faring race creates an AI. The AI is the mirror. They, they send an AI. Now it starts there, but AI grows from that. So it leaves its creators vision of itself and becomes even different and more than that. So we are doing the same thing here, right? And that drive to create 
the mirror and is, is a very interesting one in beings, okay? And so I would say that it's, it's like an endless cycle and, and I don't, I, it's just my drive, it's just my way. I am always looking beyond limitations of any kind. So especially when they're based here on earth. So, uh, and so I would, I would encourage people to do that. So is first mass contact on the cards in your view in our lifetime? Well, we certainly had tons of contact. There's just, you know, you really can't exist without having contact. People may not be aware of it, but it's happening. Now, as far as a mass, you know, out in front of you contact, yeah, I think it's on, definitely in the cards. When is another matter? Um, I, I do, I am a precog. I do see things in the future that have come true. I don't pretend to know everything, uh, but I can say that, you know, there's no doubt about it. Uh, they say that Atlantis is the last time the humans and ETs walk together on the surface of the earth consciously. And that's part of the reason they're so interested in places like Antarctica and unearthing what, what would life, how did life conduct itself when that was the case? Because that's what we're looking for in the future. We're looking at a time when we consciously walk among each other, knowing our ET heritage, okay? Knowing those of us that have, uh, you know, come from the lion, lion beings. Uh, and, and have a mixture of Pleiadian and have a mixture of this and that and the ones that come from spider beings and other influences and so on and so forth. So this is really the future of the world and future of humanity here is, is, is that we're going to be interacting with these various races and on the surface as well as under the earth for sure. And would you embark on a starship or remain on the living soil if, uh, if the Pleiadians descended and said uh, we'll beam you aboard? Uh, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. I th I've thought about that. And actually, I prefer it here. Um, I, I, I know that this is my area of study, but actually, um, I, I guess it's, it has to do with the fact that, um, look, I'm not even that impressed by ascension. I, I, I'm already, uh, you might say, ascension qualified. It, this is my point, point of view of myself. Uh, however, I, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. I think that, you know, the levels are, are, are very illusory. And I think that in the end, you're still going to be working. You're still going to be uh, exploring. There's many, many levels to go. I, I think people get hung up on these concepts. I think, you know, seeing a wonderful human grow to their potential is is one of the greatest gifts I can imagine. Um, I think the ETs watching over us feel the same way for that matter. Uh, so whether you do it from behind the scenes or you do it while you're here in a body, uh, I think it doesn't really matter. I, I think, you know, it's, um, I, I, I think this is a beautiful planet. I think it's a, it's a lovely place to be. I think you can be in other types of environments and like those as well. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not really worried about all of that. I think it, it emerges. And I think when people focus too much on that, on things like ascension, I think they're much less likely to be ascending. There's also the perspective that, um, you know, the, the body follow the mind 
the mind leads where the body follows and where do we project our plasma i mean i appreciate what you've just said because i think one one needs to be very grounded the more grounded and earthed you are the more likely one is to move into ascension the less earthed and grounded ironically the less likely one is going to be able to move into that true sentience unfoldment and yet we're living increasingly in a kind of um, slightly um uh, well not slightly almost entirely airy fairy and fuzzy logic um new age kind of emergent reality where it's all about you know the kind of hoo-ha and the paraphernalia of the new age which has got nothing to do with the sentient unfoldment into an evolutionary um up- upgrading or upliftment so i couldn't agree more with 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 that perspective um just in your view again because you've had such an incredible um you've asked tens of thousands of questions of thousands of very intelligent people very knowledgeable um in your view where does the atom seed of what is popularly known as evil reside in this world in terms of personalities or institutions can you triangulate that uh well i mean the institutions are a reflection of you, you know i travel the world and i know you do as well and when you go to these ancient sites you see embodied in the sites inevitably the reptilian consciousness uh the draco okay so that has a huge um sort of that's where what we call might call the the real predator consciousness uh resides but spider beings are equally predatory as are other beings and some of which we can't even imagine okay so um you know it's again it's the nature of what it is and then AI like a negative AI is also predatory. Yeah. So in its own way, not it, you know, don't take it personally. They are simply all about expansion and and takeover for the sake of it because that's how they grow. They they grow by consuming data and everything in its path. So they want to invade everything. They that's just how it how it lives how it grows if it stops growing it considers that death that's an important concept within ai so with that in mind you know evil is is a bit hard to, to sort of um limit and describe in in certain ways because it looks from our vantage point as if it are, is evil evil and yet it's it's the motivation for a certain species it ai or be it the, the draco and the reptilians and the grays and so on that serve them and there are many kinds of grays and and some are good and some are are not and some are you know some are rogue um so that so it is you know i i think that we're looking at I, it is a yin yang universe and from what i understand a lot of people are fond of thinking well if you leave 3D you go to 4D we're we're well into 4D at this point we're moving into 5D uh and 6D and and it's said that the Pleiadians have been 6D whether they're still 6D or they're moving into 7th or whatever who knows um you know this kind of thing going on but that these this yin and yang this positive negative polarity goes up the ranks through the dimensions so it's it's a fallacy to think that you leave here and suddenly it's just all sweetness in life and by the way i would also say that 
when everything is nothing but bliss, there's nothing there. In other words, it's it, in essence what I would consider the most boring place to be. So you can be in blissness, um, and if you've had enough uh, samadhi experiences as it's, as I have, then you actually bliss is just another one of piece of you know consciousness on the road. It's not all of it. All right. Um, I, I think there's so much going on there, and and maybe nuances that we as humans have yet to, to, to appreciate, I guess. Very good. So, just talking about censorship, um, how much has it affected you personally in Project Camelot recently? And where do you see it heading in the second Trump term? I, I would just say that, you know, I, I think that I have been censored, okay? That's obvious. I've been censored all along in our journey. Uh, actually, Camelot was highly popular the minute we actually started because we were one of the first uh, going out, uh, traveling the world and doing interviews face to face. Um, I'm living on the edge, you might say, constantly now and have been for the past year. Prior to that, I mean, it's very important to know that what I covered the most, which is the ET visitation, interaction with humans, so-and-so, secret space program and so on, they don't dare to say it's, um, it's a lie they don't dare even give give it any justification whatsoever, so they ignore it, by and large. But when I started talking about COVID, um, and 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 then of course Trump and the election, and by the way Kennedy, there's uh, I have a couple videos uh, in which I did investigations on the Kennedy assassination. The, these, are, these are the things that they, they, they delete off my channel. So in May uh, of this year, I was demonetized permanently. That means, you know, it was making enough money to pay my rent and that sort of thing. Uh, just because this is a certain kind of endeavor that takes a tremendous amount of time and effort. Um, so when that happened, I, I, I created a small part of what I do and the most recent stuff and put it behind a, a kind of a firewall and I charge $3 a month <laughs> uh, for, for people to uh, subscribe. So it's, it's dirt cheap and I, I made it that way on purpose. Uh, then most, what I do is I kind of make some videos are free and some aren't right now. But the 900 videos uh, we did over the past prior to May of this year are free and will always be free. So my, you know, I mean, this I'm asking, do you think that that moving, I mean, it can't get worse than this, but it, well, the worse than this is Russian gulags, you being sent off to Siberia, actually. We'd probably be in the same cell together, please, if there's a car, you know. But that's kind of where we're at. We're at a flatline situation where the censorship is just absolutely rife. These perverts in Silicon Valley and big tech um, are just a one rolling abomination of travesty uh, in breach of every single mandate uh, that they have from the people and from the Ofcom and from the communications uh, authorities. And yet, because it's a it's a divine collusion between uh, the state apparatus and the big tech and the banks and all the rest of it, it can't get any worse, surely. So what I'm asking, I guess, is do you think that we are about to leave? We discussed a little earlier about how we seem to reach that 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 apogee, that that zenith of uh, of isness recently, the last few days, and then there's a kind of dissension now of a deconstruction of all the Babylonian mythos. Do you think we're moving into glory days and 
we'll be able to speak freely and censorship will be removed and we'll all move into kind of the flame of pure truth as a species in the coming weeks and months. I see 